Um, John chapter 3, this is a familiar verse for most of you. Um, Hopefully you memorized John 3.16 at some point in your life. Um, I didn't grow up as a Christian, and that was a verse that I knew. So I even knew wrestlers that had it on their shirt. It's very common, right? So here we go. John chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 21 with you. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Judeans came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do apart from the presence of God. But Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, well, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they have been born from above. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can anyone be born after growing old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, You must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can these things be? But Jesus answered him, You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, yet you don't receive our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you... Excuse me. How can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I'm a little nervous these days talking about mysterious wind blowing. Probably for good reason, right? I mean, the wind blows and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes and then the lights go out. Sometimes, you know, being in the dark, though, it can reveal how much of the world that we take for granted and how much or how little we're actually paying attention. Zion and I, we've been really busy the last several years moving around from place to place, and so it's been hard to find the time to fix things like we really want. As most of you know, my wife and I, we took a trip to Seattle a few weeks ago. And we returned on a Friday night in the middle of a storm. 
only to walk into a cold and dark house. I scrambled to find light and heat and extra clothing, and we had this one great Coleman lantern in the top of the bedroom closet, and so I grabbed it and pulled it out only to find that the battery pack had corroded. Needless to say, our return to New Jersey came on a season of darkness and where we couldn't find anything. And it only took a few moments in the darkness for us to gain a new sense of clarity about how messy and disorganized our lives were. I was embarrassed when friends came over to help to walk through this house of darkness with things scattered all over the floor. When the lights finally came on, we saw things more clearly. It wasn't just because we had been living in the darkness for a few days. It was because we were forced to see the world that we had been living in in a new way. All our things were all over the house, our clothes, shoes, blankets, blankets, boxes, All sorts of things, even things that had been hidden in the back of the closet and forgotten about, somehow found their way into the center of the room. Every room. And we realized that we had been living in a world filled with light all this time. But it was a world we hadn't really paid sufficient attention to. Now, having spent some time in the dark, we were prepared to let the light show us things that we hadn't been ready to see before. We had too many things, and too few of them were in the places where they belonged, or places we had never decided if they belonged or not. So we got busy doing some early spring cleaning and reorganizing, not just shoveling the driveway and cutting down the broken limbs, but buying some things at Target that we could reorganize the closets with and making sure that we knew where different things were. And our first step on the list was, by the way, to get a new set of batteries and battery-powered lanterns and our kit ready to go in case something happened. We were here during Sandy, by the way. We should have known our lesson. The love of God, see, is like light. It shines on us and shows us who we really are. And it helps us to see the things that we had otherwise ignored or taken for granted. It inspires us to see who we might become. The Gospel of John is filled with symbolism and these things called oppositional dualities. I fail to call them dualism just because uh, that has a special word, but you hear it all throughout, good and evil, heaven and earth, flesh and spirit, light and darkness. And this is at work all throughout the Gospel of John. And if you hear the passage today and you have not read John chapter 1, then you would fail to recognize that much of the language in chapter 1 and John chapter 3 are the same. Light and darkness, birth, rebirth, flesh and spirit. So it's important to notice then that we're here when Nicodemus approaches Jesus, it is at night. It's dark, and Nicodemus prefers to approach Jesus in the, not in the light of the day, but in the darkness. Interesting, though, Nicodemus calls Jesus teacher. But he does this because he can perform signs. But Jesus charges Nicodemus with being a teacher who can't understand the basics. I'm not sure I understand the basics after listening to Jesus in chapter 3. But Nicodemus, though, if I understand the story right, he's one of those people that prefers to confront the most important challenges in the dark because confronting the world in the light is too risky. Perhaps he was risking his career 
talking to Jesus. Perhaps he wanted to explore things with Jesus he had not been comfortable letting other people see. Or perhaps he was playing politician and hoping to discover him for himself what Jesus was really about so that he could take it back to the rest of the Judean elites, either to speak on his behalf or to condemn him. That was probably my guess, by the way. But no matter the reason, they, here we have two teachers who were talking to each other in the dark. Only Jesus, according to our passage, understands the light, the foundational truth of the love of God for the world. So Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom. You see here the darkness, how the darkness imagery works. You can't see the kingdom unless you're born again, Jesus says. In other words, to see the kingdom of God, you have to turn the lights on and be willing to begin again, knowing that the world as it is, is not as it should be. To many of us, we're like Nicodemus. We've invested too much time and energy and resources into the world as it is, to let the love of God shine on us and challenge us to start over again. Too many of us have ordered our lives the way that it is to let the love of God truly shine on us so that we can order our lives the way it should be. We are like messes in the darkness that when the light comes on, we realize things are not where they should be. The light of God shines in the darkness, and that allows us to see the truth of who we are and who God is calling us to be. When the light of the love of God shines on us, it calls us to reorganize, to begin again, to find those places in our life and the world that are not consistent with the way God made us. For God so loved the world, it says. And when we let the light of God shine on us as individuals and then as a community, God's light shines through us and begins to transform the world around us. This is what I call practicing the teachings of Jesus in public. Letting the light shine. When the light of God shines on us, it's hard for us not to shine that light in the world around us. It becomes natural. We become light bearers. So I believe that the light of the love of God begins and shines on us through and through us as we begin practicing the teachings of Jesus together. That's what the Jesus movement was all about. For those of us who want to let the light of God shine on us and through us, the least we can do is spend some time wrestling together with the teachings of Jesus. My appeal to you is that if we take the time to take the teachings of Jesus seriously, enough to find a way to practice them in public, we will find the love of God changes us and changes the world. That means that we don't come to the darkness like Nicodemus, come to Jesus in the darkness like Nicodemus and say, I know that you're a teacher of God, but we come to Jesus in the light and say, I'm willing to let my whole perspective and my whole way of life be challenged and rechanged. I'm willing to start over again. That is not what Nicodemus did. When we let the love of God shine through us, meaning wrestling together, learning to practice the teachings of Jesus together in public, then the light of God not only begins to transform us, it begins to shine through us, and the rest of the world is changed by it. We've spent a lot of time together as a congregation since I've been here reading the teachings of Jesus together. A few of us have even been reading the Gospels together and taking apart specific passages so that we can wrestle with what it might look like to let the teachings of Jesus shape the way that we live together. And it's not easy work. 
For those of you who have been involved in some of those conversations, it sounds a lot like, well, what about this? Or maybe Jesus meant that, or surely Jesus didn't mean this. It's never self-evident, but it's always life-changing. One thing is clear. We walk away saying, wow, I thought I knew something about the gospel, but now I've got to go and rethink everything. When we let the love of God shine and we begin taking the teachings of Jesus seriously enough to wrestle with them together, we might hear Jesus saying to us what he said to Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God without the willingness to start over again from scratch. You might ask, well, what does that look like then? What are we talking about, this light and this love of God? What does it mean to practice the teachings of Jesus together? So I will submit to you today one concrete example, the story of Clarence. So as a young white country boy, Clarence grew up with the Talbot County Jail in Marion just 100 yards outside his bedroom window. Now you may know this story. He walks past it regularly and he befriended several black prisoners, including the cook and some workers. He learned about this torture device. By the way, this is probably in the 1920s. He learns about this torture device called the stretcher, which has almost exclusively been used by, for and on black people, black men in particular. Men would have their feet fastened to the floor and their arms stretched toward the ceiling with a block, of, with a block and tackle hoist. New at church, Clarence heard the voice of the bass in the choir the prison warden, stirring up the congregation wildly as he sang, Love lifted me. But that night in his room, he heard moans coming from the prison next door to his house. And as one biographer tells the story, he knew not only who was on the stretcher, but who was pulling the ropes. The same man who only hours before had sung his heart out to God. That nearly tore me to pieces, Clarence told years later. That boy Clarence grew up to be the famous Clarence Jordan. If you don't know his name, Hillary and Mitch, a couple of friends of mine, they tell me, uh, they're folks from Koinonia Farm, they tell me that his name is actually pronounced Clarence Jordan. I don't know this Georgia accent, but uh, even that event for Jordan when he was young, allowed him to see something that many Christians miss, this disconnect between the claims that Christians make about the love of God and the way that Christians live. Jordan said that he always felt that there was this disconnect between the teachings of Jesus and the society he lived in. He went to school and he studied agriculture so that he could go back to his town and help the farmers. But when he went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he got a PhD in New Testament because he couldn't understand the Bible and he was certain that his family and friends and people in his town around him couldn't either. He made the famous translation of the Bible called the Cotton Patch Gospel. And it's quite extraordinary if you've not seen it. He began to refer to the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' platform for a God movement. And he began to use it to critique materialism, ecclesiasticism, it's a big, good word that we probably should wrestle with a little bit. And materialism, which he saw were the most important forces that were competing for people's minds and hearts. 
Jordan wanted to learn to practice the teaching of Jesus in public. He wanted to let God's light shine in the world. So he met with a former missionary and decided to buy 440 acres of a farm uh, to start a racially integrated farming community in Georgia. As you can imagine, it wasn't without trouble. Many of the members were kicked out of the local Baptist church since it wasn't a place where people of color were welcome. By the mid-1950s, Koinonia was this community. It had 41 people and over half of them were children. 41 people, over half of them were children. In the 1950s, the desegregation of the schools and increased racial tensions. The Ku Klux Klan became a common sight in town and Koinonia Farms was a target for hatred. They had a roadside market that was bombed. Their market was boycotted. And members of the community began talking about abandoning the whole thing. Most refused, however, to give up. Florence, Clarence's wife, he said, we knew that, she said, we knew that we wouldn't be the first Christians to die and we wouldn't be the last. But to abandon the farm would mean leaving the people with no hope. And that was not something they could do with a clear conscience. Clarence Jordan changed the world. You probably heard of one of the organizations. If you haven't heard of Koinonia Farm, you've probably heard of the result of his low-income housing project, Habitat for Humanity. Koinonia Farm still exists today, by the way, and you should probably give it a visit if you're ever down around Americus, Americus, Georgia. By the way, you can say hello to my friends Hillary and Mitch. Clarence Jordan wanted to be, wanted to let the love of God shine by taking the teachings of Jesus serious. It meant that he was willing to start over, to redo everything, to let everything begin again, even from the ground up, from the soil up. He believed that if we take the teachings of Jesus seriously, then we should expect that the world around us will not take it kindly. Unlike Nicodemus, Clarence Jordan was not willing to begin, the, he was willing to begin the world over again, not coming to Jesus in the dark but taking all the issues of his day and putting them in the light of the love of God. He began a community that would challenge themselves to learn to practice the teachings of Jesus in public. So the question I want to ask you, Brookside, this morning is this. What would happen if we let the love of God shine through us? If we began to take the teachings of Jesus seriously? If we were to really wrestle with them until we could find a way to practice them in public? I'm sure that it would not look like Clarence Jordan's answer, but his example might inspire us at least to have the courage to come up with creative answers. Perhaps we would not have things, perhaps we would not have things that we allow to remain in the darkness, in the darkness anymore. Perhaps we would be willing as a church to tackle the harder things, the things that the rest of the world has tried hard to keep in the darkness for too long. Things like racism or sexism or homophobia or even gun violence, dare be it said. If we want to be born again, if we agree to be reborn by the love of God, if we agree that we are willing to let the world begin over again, then there's nothing that we're unable to bring to the light. That's what faith looks like. 